Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode is supported by the Jib Foundation. The election race is heating up with a new poll showing Labor and the Coalition are neck to neck. The fate of Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese is in the hands of the women of Australia and many aren't sold on either. I would describe women as being angry. What would you have done differently in the last three years if you had known that so many Australians were holding a grudge? Oh, I think I could have certainly been more sensitive. It is traditional for the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition to give their final major addresses of the campaign to the National Press Club. Prime Minister Scott Morrison becomes the first Prime Minister in over 50 years to not give such an address. We wish him well on Saturday, as we do our speaker today, <laughs> Opposition Leader Anthony Albanese. Why is everybody laughing? Jan Fran has issues breaking down the election one issue at a time. Brought to you by a rational fear. <laughs> Why is everybody laughing, Laura Tingle? It has been a very, very funny week. And welcome, everybody, to Jan Fran has issues, the podcast that breaks down the election one issue at a time. How's this week been for you, Daniel? Jen, I've gone from extremely stressed to extremely calm, but now I'm back in the stressed out category. So, yeah. You're a swing voter. <laughs> You're dead right. I am a swing voter. <laughs> yeah, well, you're certainly not the only one, that's for sure. Um, on today's show, by the way, because the election is just around the corner, we are on the final countdown. We're going to do something a little bit different. So, We've asked you guys to give us some questions and we're going to get those questions answered and we're going to do it in two ways. So we're going to be talking policy, first of all, issues. You know how we love to talk about issues on this show. Um, we're going to be talking all of your policy questions with Guardian journo Amy Ramikas, who is an absolute gun when it comes to policy stuff around elections. Mm. And then we're going to talk about the practicalities of voting, actually getting into the booth, what happens, how to do it, what if you get COVID, all of those sorts of questions. And we're going to do that with Alex Morris from the Australian Electoral Commission. That's on today's app. 
And then next week we're going to be talking about how the election was faked with QAnon himself. So it's going to be great. <laughs> we're going to save the best for last, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we're not doing any um, big issues on the show today, um, we're going to be taking issue, though, with something that happened over the course of the week. And the thing that I have chosen to take some issue with is Scott Morrison tackling a child. A child! Have a listen. Oh, that's good contact. Uh, I don't think that was the actual thing. I think we actually got a uh, state of origin clip there uh, by mistake. <laughs> yes, it was not as bad as what we've made it sound. Are we the media that is sensationalising the realities? We've tried not to do that. We've reached the pinnacle of our careers. We are the fake news. Oh, my goodness. We've gotten through so many episodes without being fake news and we trip at the final hurdle just like Scott Morrison tripped on that rugby field. <laughs> Let me let me put this into context. Scomo was out playing a game of um, soccer, I think it was, uh, with some young kids uh, on the campaign trail, and he accidentally, and I want to stress, it clearly was an accident that he tackled this young kid to the ground. Mm. Little kids have had it too good for too long, Jan. They need to be brought brought down to size. Well, specifically the shin shin height, at least, of Scott Morrison. Well, it's you'd be pleased to know that Luca, who was the young boy that got tackled, he is good. He he, he stood up and he gave the PM a bit of a high five. Um, but yes, you know, it's only been a few days since Scott Morrison called himself a bulldozer. Oh, we man. didn't think it was a literal thing. <laughs> and it is basically the event that sparked a million <laughs> no, memes. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So that's one thing that happened on the campaign trail this week. Jan Fran has issues. So as you guys know, we love talking about issues on this podcast. Um, Over the past few weeks, we've covered housing, we've covered foreign policy, we've covered cost of living. But I know that the election is is right around the corner. It's almost D-Day, Dan. Mm, yeah, I mean, we certainly haven't covered where to get a veggie sausage uh, <laughs> for democracy sausage people out there, so we need to definitely cover that. Well, there are some just really important things that we need to, you know, we need to just get across before we head to the polls. They are, of course, all issues-based, so we did put that question to you guys. If you have any questions about policies, shoot them our way, and that you did. We're very grateful. Certainly did. So this episode is kind of like a cliff notes of the last three years of issues so you can understand every single issue in about half an hour. (laughs) Yeah, if if that is even possible. And then, of course, answering your questions, we have Amy Ramikas from The Guardian who has been live blogging this election, so she's totally fine and has not sustained any brain injuries. Welcome, Amy. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I mean, I'm not sure if I would say I've sustained a brain injury or just compounded <laughs> the one I have from covering Parliament, but here we are. Here we are indeed. Without any further ado, let's jump right in. Our first question comes from Esther McMahon, and this is her question for you, Amy. Hey Jen, my name's Esther. My question's about the Coalition's promise to let me take 50k out of my super to pay for my first house. Can you tell me how is this different from the first home super saver scheme that the government has already been doing for a year where I can take up to 30,000 out of my super to pay for my first home? Good question. They sound like quite similar policies. What is the difference here? Okay, the difference is, Esther, on the face of it, is the super saver policy allows you to put extra money 
into your super account where it will accrue more interest and grow quicker than it would in a bank account. So you can put up to an extra 30,000 tax-free, get a little bit more interest and then hopefully grow your house deposit faster than you would in a bank. What the coalition is offering now is to actually use your super balance to add towards your home loan. So it's 40% or $50,000, whichever is the greater figure. Uh, And you can then use that towards your house deposit, but you have to put it back allegedly, when you sell the house down the track along with any capital gains. That's the main difference. One is it's your money that's growing in interest in a super account. The other is it's your money from your super balance but has to be put back. There are issues with the government's latest one, according to economists, because uh, you do miss out on some of that growth. $50,000 probably won't actually even cover the fees and things that you have, and there are fears that it's going to lead to a further bump in house prices because it's open to absolutely everyone. Wow, that's very clear. Thank you, Amy Ramirez. <laughs> You're welcome. Can I use that $50,000 to go to the Hilton and just live there, live there for some time? Well, the government also allowed you to take out $20,000 during COVID. So uh, you could have gone to the Hilton if you could show that you were in economic distress. But given the numbers of people who actually took out money from their super during the pandemic, it would be very surprising if there were many people under the age of 30 who actually have $50,000 in their super account at the moment. Wow. A very, very good point. And staying with the topic of housing, we have another question from Susie Wakefield. This question is not about the coalition's policy, but rather Labor's. Susie, take it away. What happens if you enter the Labor's sharing home loan policy where they pay, I think it's at 40%? What happens if you can't reach your repayments? Can the government take your house away from you? Thanks. Amy, what happens if you can't make your repayments and Labor has put in 40% of, of the cost of your home? Do you have to have Jim Chalmers come over and stuff? Is that, is that something that needs to happen? <laughs> that's, that's exactly. A member of the Labor caucus then moves into um, a room in your house. No, that is not what happens. Jesus so- Christ, you'd be much better just <laughs> taking the house than coming and living with me, mate. Just take my house. You come home and there's Tony Burke or Shane Newman just hanging out in your home just being like, how are you going? We're roomies now. So, no, that is not what happens. So the way that Labor's housing policy is, it's shared equity. So you still have to go to a bank and get a loan. So basically what Labor is saying is if you want to buy a a $650,000 home, because that's how much houses cost in your area, but you can only get a loan for 450 or 500,000 is that the government will essentially cover the remaining part of the loan that you're unable to get from the bank and basically just kind of give it to you as sort of rent-free money until you sort of sell the house or pay them back or refinance them or pay them back or start earning more money and go over the cap and can pay them back. So if you couldn't make your repayments the bank would probably end up taking your home, to be clear. And that's how it's sort of worked in other equity sharing things. It's no different from a normal mortgage in that sense. However, there are safeguards in place. Uh, if you, you know, have the, you have the usual safeguards, if you lose your job, because um, you will need some sort of like income insurance that goes with this mortgage insurance, you, the home cannot 
uh, is not eligible for this scheme if you don't have just everyday insurance. So if it's flood or fire or something, then you become ineligible for the scheme if you have not insured your home. Uh, and if you decide to sell or, you know, something happens, you've got two years with the government to work out what it is that you do. So if you've got to move uh, and you're no longer able to live in the home, which is one of the rules, you've got you've got um, a little bit of leeway there to say, well, I'm moving for this reason. This is why it's happening. If you start earning over the $120,000, I think it is, you've got about two years to work it out with the government over how you buy them out from that equity. If you die and you haven't paid off the house and you've left it to your kids and your kids earn over the cap, Again, they can work out over the next couple of years with the government how that shared equity works out. But Labor is sort of saying, we imagine that people will have paid off a big chunk of their loan or in fact paid back the government for the equity that they're putting into the house by the time that they do uh, they do pass on. And that's how it's worked in state schemes like Western Australia, where it's been around for about 30 years, Victoria and indeed the UK. Mm, wow. Well, two years is quite generous because you'd only spend about one year of that on the phone to Centrelink. So that would be, <laughs> that would work out all right. You'd have a year to sort that out. Yeah. It is also only open to 10,000 people as well. So you have to check if you're eligible for that one. Wow. Well, that, that is quite a limited number of folks, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's been the big criticism of um, Labor's policy is that mm, it is only 10,000 places. Not a lot when you consider um, how many people are struggling to get into the housing market. All right, let's move on. We've got um, our next question. We're moving on from housing entirely. This question comes from Gemma from Perth. Hi, Jan. It's Gemma in Perth. Love your podcast. I was just wondering if any of the political parties have any COVID policies. I'm on chemotherapy, so I'm severely immunocompromised. And also I have a two-year-old who isn't eligible for vaccination I'm feeling really abandoned at the moment by politicians, especially in Perth because COVID is rampant right now. Okay, thanks. See ya. Oh, Gemma. I know. She's really going through it at the moment. And um, thank you so much for your question, Gemma, because I think that there would be a lot of people who are in that same boat. We've got tens of thousands of cases of COVID right around the country. I know we want to think that it's over. I really want to think that it's over. It's not. It's still around. And I think the most uh, vulnerable amongst us are really kind of feeling the pinch here, including Gemma. So COVID on the campaign trail, Amy, haven't heard too much of it. What are the policies? No, and Gemma, I just, yeah, it must be terrifying for anyone who's immune-compromised just going to the shops and taking your life into your own hands, uh, especially since everybody just kind of dropped the mask mandate. So, yeah, Hmm. massive, massive sympathies. And if you can still wear a mask in those essential shopping areas, just, you know, just do it for humanity. It just makes sense. But anyways, COVID has not played a huge role in the election campaign, which is kind of crazy when you consider how much it dominated our life for the first two years of this government. Not to mention both leaders were out for it like only a month ago. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Uh, but it did actually pop up on the com- campaign on Wednesday where Scott Morrison was asked about it. And that's because we have had more deaths in the first uh, five months of this year than we did in the last two years combined. So more than four 5,000 people have died of COVID this year. It's working out 
to be about 45 people a day um, are dying from COVID each day in Australia. Uh, So Scott Morrison was asked about it and he basically gave the same answer that we've been hearing, that this is living with COVID and we are sick of governments in our lives. And he actually used quite interesting language uh, where he moved into that Freedom Party area where he was talking about people dying with COVID rather than people dying of COVID. He has gone the, we're not getting governments in your lives anymore. We're not going to have any more lockdowns. We're not going to have the daily press conferences. We're just going to get on with it. Uh, And everything that we have done over the last two years has allowed you to get on with it. So that was a pretty blunt answer from Scott Morrison on Wednesday. Anthony Albanese was also asked about it uh, and he had a little bit more sympathy. He also said like, you know, there is a high vaccination rate which is true for the first and second doses, not necessarily true with the third dose. We're kind of lagging behind in that. Fourth doses aren't even eligible or open to eligibility Mm. for everyone at the moment, which is another problem as we head into winter. But Anthony Albanese said if he wins government, he would actually just like to convene a national strategy so we have one moving forward, so we all know when we're getting third and fourth doses, so we all know what's happening. Well, it sounds like a good idea to have a national strategy, something that might have been missing over this two-year period, after <laughs> all, leaving it up to the states. I've, I don't think it was ScoMo's job, apparently. You know, No, no, it wasn't, you know. Um, he'd just get the army involved a little bit earlier. That's the only thing he would do differently, apparently. <laughs> so just an army officer in everybody's home saying, get the vaccine. But, you know, back in summer, we were taking wickets during the pandemic and now we're in football season, so we're taking goals in the pandemic. Yep. We're tackling yep. with the yep. pandemic. We're tackling with the go pandemic. the sharkies with the pandemic. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's all moving on. So, Gemma, terrifying. Yeah, exactly. I think the long and short of it is that mm, the, a politician, well, the major parties anyway, Labor and the Coalition, don't really want to be talking about COVID by the sounds of it. We're living with it. That's what's happening. And that seems to be a bipartisan strategy, albeit with some slight differences on either side. So take care of yourself, Gemma. That's that's what I'd say. All right. Our next question comes from Kate. She is from Victoria. And this is her question, well, to me, but also to you, Amy. Hi, Fran. My question is, what are the teeth that an independent federal ICAC would have Will it take years to investigate an ex-PM and his cabinet before a public loses faith at the delaying cost and what penalties can be applied? Jail, monetary, barred from boards, etc. Love to know. All right, the teeth, yes. Very important question. (laughs) It is. Well, I mean, if we're talking about the policy that the government has put forward, the coalition has put forward, doesn't have a lot of teeth, uh, wouldn't actually be able to investigate most of the scandals that we heard about over the last parliament, Uh, wouldn't be investigating MPs. It would essentially just be looking at, you know, public servants, uh, would be done behind closed doors. Uh, It's it's the biggest criticisms of it is that it wouldn't actually do anything. Not We wouldn't actually see anything different than what we're currently seeing it. And Scott Morrison can bang on about the fact that it's 367 pages or whatever, but it was not tabled in Parliament. The government's one, definitely gummy, 
not not with teeth with that one. <laughs> All gums, no teeth. All okay. gums, no teeth. Which, yeah. which one has the chompers? <laughs> uh, the crossbench has put through a integrity commission which uh, proposal which has chompers. Uh, they're saying that everyone should be able to be investigated, that there be open hearings, that uh, that the independent investigators actually they get take referrals and they decide what they look into, but the independents crossbench proposal for an integrity commission does have teeth and that is looking at you know jail and fines but it is important to note that integrity commissions do not make findings they do not decide whether you are guilty or innocent all they do is put together a brief of evidence and then give it to the department of public prosecutions who then decides whether to lay charges and take it to court yeah, so the short answer is that, yes, it, you could end up in jail. That's not for the commission to decide. That's for um, an, another department to decide. But what penalties, if any, can the commission apply? Or are they there just to make recommendations, Amy? Yeah, do you, do you like do you get like a scratch and sniff sticker if uh, you know if you're really terrible or something? Or... <laughs> well, I mean that's kind of what you get now. You just get a bit of a sniff around everything that's happening and go, oh, we don't like that. Um, <laughs> no, the commission probably wouldn't be have penalties because then that would take away from what the commission actually does, which is investigate. Labor have said that they want one with teeth and that they would support what the independents were putting forward. So they want something that is more meaty than what the government is putting forward. I'm not really interested in the penalties in the independence one. I'm more interested in how many pages. Is it more or less? <laughs> and are we talking a four pages? How is how small is the font? Is it a scroll? I imagine it could be a scroll. One of the things that I find really amusing about the fact that he's like, it's 367 pages, um, is that their climate policy that they took to uh, Glasgow was about four pages. And so- <laughs> I think that were, that was written on the back of a coaster. Yeah, it was a na- on the back of a napkin, yeah, yeah. Okay. We've got um, one last question for you, Amy. I think this one is um, is a really important one, so we're going to shoot it over to Nico from Melbourne. Nico, what's your question? Why is John Howard still alive? <laughs> mm, Nico, that is a very good question. I don't know if Amy Ramikas has the brain juice for this one. <laughs> I also just love the tone in which Nico yep. asked that question. Yep. Very fatigued, very tired. Oh dear. Obviously, we do not wish death upon anybody. We don't. I don't know why John Howard is still alive, whether it's those daily walks that he took, just generally staying hydrated and looking after himself, or whether there's been any sort of dark deals done at Crossroads. I cannot answer that for you, but he is still alive (laughs) and he is still campaigning uh, and he's currently trying to get Josh Frydenberg elected in Kuyong. Amy, he's still alive because he walks in a tracksuit every morning still. You know, that's what he does. He gets around. He does his morning walks, physical exercise. Sometimes I think people stay alive just by sheer grudge power too, like just wanting to outlive <laughs> other people. So Spite. <laughs> yes. That's what drives me. As an Eastern European, spite is keeping me alive. So. Mm, yeah, he'd just be still. He'd, he, I think he's just happy that he's just holding out until Keating dies before yeah, he Yeah, exactly. Dies. There's just a race between the two of them. It's being like, you will come to my funeral. What I would really like to see is the Liberals wheel out Robert Menzies, uh, just like exhume the body, 
get him around to some swing electorates. You know, just some weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> weekend type at Bernie's style. But we definitely do not wish John Howard harm. Please do not send me lots of letters, Jared Henderson. Yes, D- please don't slide into our DMs about that. It was um, just a joke question. John, may you live a long and comfortable life. Good on you. And Amy, thank you so much for joining us and answering all of our listener questions in just the exceptional way that you can. Anytime. We've just got a few more days to get through and then I'm just drinking all of the tequila in the world. Amy, <laughs> can I just ask you, on the 22nd of May, do you go someplace to have your brain wiped so you can fill it with like new stuff well you know what i'm not sure if we'll have a government on the 22nd of may so um that'll probably be delayed until we work out who's won the election i'm sure it's on the pbs jan fran has issues That was Amy Ramikas, a journalist from The Guardian, talking us through all of your policy questions. We did promise as well, Dan, that we weren't just going to talk about policies, we were going to talk about the practicalities of voting. Dare I say, the nuts and bolts and pencils of voting. (laughs) The don't draw a dick and balls on the ballot of voting. Oh, I think Alex will have something to say about that. Let's, Let's ask him about that for sure. Yes, let's ask him. Alex, the Alex in question is Alex Morris from the Australian Electoral Commission, here to answer all of your questions regarding dicks and balls and, and various other practicalities. So sh- welcome, Alex. G'day, Dan. G'day, Dan. How are you doing? <laughs> I went with nuts and bolts and you went straight for dicks and balls? <laughs> Jesus, Jen. I know. Alex, let's, I get, let's get this one out of the way. I had the pleasure of tweeting AEC and it, it, the AEC Twitter account told me, yes, I can draw a dick and balls as long as the intention of my vote is clear. I just want to get that on the record. Is that right? Yes, that was, in fact, me that answered your question, Dan. So. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So long as you've numbered your boxes correctly, that's every box in the House ballot paper, one to six above the line, one to 12 below the line for the Senate. Yes, you can draw what you like, but we employ over 100,000 people to staff our polling places and to count the votes. One of them might be your auntie or your uncle or your nana. (laughs) You've got to think about whether you want nana looking at that. Well, you're not going to be signing it. What about like a nice little message to the to the counter saying, good job, keep counting, you know? Look, that's always lovely, um, just so long as, you, again, you don't identify yourself. That's uh, that's the risk you run here. Okay. Dear person reading this, take regular Blake breaks and drink plenty of water. Thank you. That's good advice. I personally just want to encourage people to vote in the right order just to make sure that their vote is clear and concise. <laughs> and I know that we're saying that you can draw a bunch of things around it, just don't. Do it properly. Get it in there, babes. That's my hot tip for Saturday. Jan Fran, the wowser from down under. Just say no thanks. <laughs> I know. Please don't mess with democracy. This is because Jan Jan grew up in Lebanon. She's very, she's, you know, she's nervous. She's nervous about democracy. <laughs> well, actually, funny you mentioned that because the Lebanese election was uh, just last week. And, yeah, it's a shit show. So, you know, we've got a pretty functioning democracy down here. I'm constantly reminded of that um, come election times around the world. But let's get cracking. We're talking practicalities. We've got our first question. It comes from Jesse in New South Wales. Hello, Jen. My name's Jesse, and I have a question about voting, which is, um, will there in my lifetime be online voting? Because I just think about the whole process and it's so extremely analog and old-fashioned feeling, which is just more and more at odds with like the way the rest of the world is. Thank you. Yeah, interesting. 
That's a good question. Thank you, Jesse. What do you reckon, Alex? Far out. Well, um, Jan, I, I think it's interesting that we, we sort of started by talking about uh, an overseas election. Um, we're a world leader in terms of election security, election transparency, election integrity, um, and something that we can all actually be really, really proud of. And, and part of that is that um, we have this like analog pen and pencil and paper or pen and paper, if you want to bring a pen, um, process that is heavily scrutinised. If we were to consider electronic voting, and this would be a matter for the parliament to consider, it's not something the AC can like snap our fingers and make happen. Um, right. But we would need to be able to ensure that if an electronic system were brought in, that it could replicate that level of integrity, of a transparency. Um, and it's not something you'd want to sort of bring in at the last minute or, um, you know, uh, to, to go a bit coarse. You don't, you don't want to half-ass this stuff. Um, mm. You want to put your full ass into it, um, and uh, and really make you want to full ass it. Exactly, I like that. exactly. Both yeah. bum cheeks. Okay. You yeah. occasionally see overseas things like you know claims that elections have been stolen or have been fraudulent. In Australia, that's just not possible because of all of the levels of scrutiny that are applied. So you've got your scrutineers, you've got every AEC staff member signing a declaration of, of political neutrality, and everything that we do is subject to all of this scrutiny. And and you just want to make sure that. If there's an electronic aspect brought in, um, that it it's capable of that same level of scrutiny as well. Yeah, I mean, I just hearing like in the last US election, just all the conversation around the Dominion voting machines and the other voting machines that don't work and things like that, and voting machines breaking down. I can't imagine like if we entrust the same people who put the NBN together to do our voting, that it would go so smoothly. <laughs> That was a slightly long answer here, Alex, but to answer Jesse's question, no, we probably won't see online voting maybe in our lifetime, even though that does seem a bit crazy to me. Maybe are we waiting are we waiting for the technology to develop maybe? I mean, realistically, probably yes. Um, Jessie mm. did fail as well in her lifetime. I don't know how long Jessie's going to live. So uh, that that does sort of uh, <laughs> make it difficult. Jessie could be 99. You're right. Is this a putting threat? us under the pump. Oh, I would never threaten Jessie. We, 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 we think <laughs> Jessie's cool. All right. Let's go to our, um, our second question there. It's from Julie. So, Julie, kick it away. What's your question? Hi. My question is about the Senate. Um, I'm thinking of voting below the line in the Senate because I don't particularly want to vote for one party. I think I'd rather vote for individuals, so numbering 1 to 12, and my choices will obviously be split between the parties. Just wondering how significant it is to do that. Is my vote going to make more of a difference if I go above the line or if I do go below the line and choose the individuals? Does that only really come into play, um, you know, if, if it's a close call and um, they have to start counting preferences? I'm a little bit confused, so any light that you could shed on that um, would be fantastic. Thanks. Okay, thank you for your question, Julie. Essentially, how does one make their vote count in the Senate? Alex. Okay, uh, just another easy one then. Um, it sounds like... <laughs> Julie's actually kind of answered her own question here. So um, she wants to vote for individual candidates rather than parties or groups. That's what below the line voting's for. So so long as you number at least one to twelve below the line, you are having your say. And it sounds like she prefers specific candidates over maybe the way the parties group them. That's fine. Go for it below the line. If you just want to vote for parties above the line, at least one to six, and you're good to go. 
And is it more significant if you do vote below the line? Like does your does your vote um, count more? Does it give the parties a bit more information about who you want? Does it affect preferences? What's the key difference between voting above or below the line in terms of your vote? Every vote has the same level of significance. Um, so, you know, we've all, everyone's vote weighs the same. That's sort of a basic principle of democracy. Um, all it is is that you are saying, uh, so if you vote above the line, a party has a list um, below the line of candidates in a particular order. Um, so it might be apple, orange, pear or something like that to use the sort of fruit-based example we use in the education centre. Um, you might decide that you like pear more than apple or orange, so you want to vote below the line for pear first. And if you're in New South Wales and you've got tons of people below the line, do you get like, and you fill out below the line correctly, do you get a certificate or something or a sticker? I know it's, it's a huge number. I, I think Anthony Green's done the research on this and it's only a very, very small percentage um, of total voters that do this. The, there is actually a risk here as well because um, if you number every box, like the more boxes there are to number, the more numbers you've got to remember, there's a chance that you might mm. buff up your numbering. numbering. Mm. If you skip a number, if you repeat a number, it won't make your vote completely informal in the Senate, but your vote does stop at the point where you stuff up. Oh, God. So it's slightly riskier. Yeah. There's a little bit more risk with voting below the line. Actually, I got a, um, a message from Gian Rooney, the Olympian. Oh, Thank right. you, Gian, for sending in the message, which was exactly about this issue. She said she had no problems voting in the House of Representatives, tick, but the Senate card was so different because the abbreviations of each party above the line were so hard to decipher she didn't even know what party was necessarily um, available to vote for and she hardly knew any of the state representatives that were standing in for the Senate and what they stood for mm. and, you know, what their what their gamut was. She was sort of much more focused on the local candidates for the House of Representatives. So she kind of just flagged that as like this is less of a question and more of a comment. Just be aware when you're voting in the Senate. Also, Gian had a problem because she didn't go one, two, three, four, five. She awarded gold, silver and bronze. Oh, yes. And <laughs> that was a real, really messed that up, Gian. <laughs> that, was, that was the other issue. Thank you, Gian. All right, let's go to Gina from Victoria. She's got a question about voting and COVID, which is still a thing. Mm. Here's her question. Hey, Jan, just a question about voting. Uh, I tested positive for COVID this morning, which is Tuesday, and I've applied for a postal vote because it's open till tomorrow evening. Um, I'm in regional Victoria, though, and a little pop-up came when I put my address in saying, hey, we might not get the papers to you in time. Go to a pre-poll station if you can. Clearly I can't do that. I'm just wondering what do I do if the papers don't get here? Um, I really want my vote to count. Any advice would be welcome. Thanks so much. Bye. Oh, Gina, hopefully the papers get there. I know. And there'd be so many people in Gina's position as well because as much as we'd like to think that, yeah, COVID's not a thing, it definitely is a thing. Mm. Um, so to the people who, who have gotten COVID this week, might get COVID tomorrow, what do they do, Alex? This is a, this is a tough one. We're, we're answering a lot of questions from people in Gina's position today. Um, first of all, um, I've heard that sort of voice before, That's that sort of COVID throat voice. Uh, it sucks. Mm -hmm. I really hope you get well yeah. Gina. Because she, Gina tested positive before 6 o'clock on Tuesday night, she is eligible for a postal vote, as she said. Um, she's not eligible for telephone voting. Anyone that tests positive after 6 p.m. on Tuesday night um, is eligible. Now, what we started doing this week is um, printing out uh, postal votes at our local divisional offices and sending them out through Express Post rather than batch producing them in Sydney or Melbourne and sending them uh, that way. 
Um, there's a good chance by the time that you're listening to this uh, that Gina has received her postal votes uh, in the mail um, and her vote uh, will still get back to us in time because we do have 13 days after election day to receive the postal votes back from voters as well. Uh, that's something that we always wait for during the counts. So um, there is time for Janice to do that. In terms of witnessing, you need you need your postal vote to be witnessed. If you don't have a housemate or a partner or someone that can in your place that can do that for you, um, you can consider sort of a contact-free uh, witnessing thing, the same way that you do with food delivery. Um, so you know, let, pop your postal vote on the doorstep, have someone come witness it, sign it, and then cast your vote. So I hope that helps, Virginia. The other thing I will say is. <sighs> There's a difficult situation for a lot of people who might be in a situation where, look, if you don't get your postal vote, you might not be able to vote on the day. Um, we do send out, we don't just blanket fine people. We do send you a letter going basically, hey, doesn't look like you voted. Um, can you please tell us why? And uh, obviously, I was in COVID isolation. I wasn't able to make it to a polling place is something we would absolutely consider. Well, I had a friend actually who just texted me this morning, Alex. She got um, COVID on Sunday. So we're recording this podcast here on, on Thursday. She got it a few days ago on Sunday and thought that she would be able to use the phone system. Mm. But looks like she can't and now has to kind of scramble to apply for a postal vote and hope that it gets here in time <laughs> before Saturday. So she's she's a little bit miffed about about that and kind of texted me in a flurry saying, ask the person from the AEC this question. I said, well, funnily enough, we've got someone on the podcast in just a few hours. So what do you have to say to that? I, what I'll say to that is I, I would love to be able to say, look, yeah, we can extend this to everyone. Um, the eligibility for the phone voting, and it's, it's been rolled out as a, as a serious emergency measure. The legislation actually like automatically expires at the end of the year. So it's not something that we'll be offering in future um, mm. as the parliament makes a further call on that. But the legislation is super, super strict um, about who is eligible. And it does relate to that, you know, testing positive as at a certain date. So, I, again, for anyone who is in that situation, I do feel for you. Um, though it's one of those things where, like, there are people at every election who encounter medical emergencies as well. There are people that go into labour, and I don't mean a political party, I mean, you know, childbirth, um, and mm -hmm. are hospitalised and can't make it. There are people that have heart attacks. Um, and th there are people, for whatever reason, that can't vote on the day. And we're not just, like, soulless automatons who are just going to send you a $20 fine for not going. We, we do understand that there, life gets in the way sometimes and, and we're happy to consider those circumstances. Mm. Hello, folks. It's Jan Fran from The Future here interrupting the broadcast. And by future, I mean Friday morning at approximately 11 a.m. So just to let you know that things have changed. So we've had a bit of a change to the regulations around telephone voting for people who are COVID positive and in isolation. So if you've tested positive from 6pm now on Friday the 13th, so that's basically everyone who's currently in COVID isolation, you are eligible for telephone voting. Those regulations are going through now as I record this uh, and the AEC will have more information about that telephone voting system on aec.gov.au. Uh, this is something the uh, Commissioner wrote to the government this morning recommending and uh, we're glad to see that it's been uh, implemented so quickly. So once again, if you're in COVID isolation, you are eligible for telephone voting. Okay, our next question comes from Aisha in Queensland. Hi, Jen. 
Um, the seat of my electorate is considered very safe. Um, it's never been lost to Labor or not for many decades and is currently held by a key government minister. The margin they won by last election was 20, 12%, um, which I only half understand how that works. So does that mean that they got over 50% in the first round of preferential voting? Would voting for this uh, a minor party then throw my vote away when the seat is so safe? At the end of the day, I'd rather, much rather Labor to get in than the current incumbent, um, but I did want to vote for a minor party. Okay, thank you. Oh, no, maths questions. Uh-huh. Ah, okay, so Aisha lives in a very um, safe seat that's never been lost to Labor. The margin that was won at the last election was 12%. What does that mean? <laughs> I tell you what, these are some amazing questions. Your listeners uh, have gone above and beyond. They're pretty good, aren't they? Shout out to you guys. Yep, yep. I've only got dumb questions from Twitter. No, no, fair, fair, of course. (laughs) That's what we get on Twitter as well. No, we've got good problems too. Um, All right, so what I will say here, 12% is the difference between uh, the winning candidate and the second-place candidate. So it's um, in this place it's a relatively large margin. Um, There are big ones. Um, It's possible that the candidate in that seat, and I don't know which seat it was, uh, won on first preferences, which, which means that, at the very first count, that candidate got 50% plus one of the vote. That's it, they win. With that said, we still uh, distribute preferences and do a full count in every seat every way. Anyway, uh, around uh, two-thirds of all of the House seats at the last election uh, were ultimately decided on preferences. So no candidate mm. 50% plus one at the first count. Um, in terms of having your say, though, or wasting your vote, first of all, no such thing as wasting a vote. Um, let's be really, really clear on that. Your vote always matters. Every vote in every race, no matter how safe the seat, always matters because any party that wins more than 4% of the vote, any party or candidate, I should say, uh, is eligible for election funding. Uh, and that's based on how many number ones they get in the first count. Whoever you whoever you put as your number one, assuming they hit that 4% threshold, is eligible for a bit of money from the AEC. And that affects funding. That affects um, that party's capacity potentially to campaign in your seat in the future. Yeah, so that that point of her question of would voting for a minority party then throw away my vote if the seat was so safe, I think if I can just jump in here, no. If you want to vote for a minor party because you think they best represent the interests of your electorate, um, go ahead and do that. That's the simplest way to think about it when you walk into the voting booth. What do you care about and who is going to represent those interests the best for you and your community and ultimately the country? Mm-hmm. I follow Senator Matt Canavan on Twitter and he loves minor parties. Any party to do with mining, big <laughs> into it. Hey, I've got a question from Twitter. This is from Andy Leach, one of my followers on Irrational Fear. He says, AEC's public comms are second to none, no notes. Question, will you get a long break after Saturday, Alex? Uh, look, not until the count's over. Um, so... <laughs> We kind of uh, swap one big job for another on Saturday night. So six o'clock Saturday, oh. we now have to count, um, geez, upward of 30 million votes. So House and Senate uh, ballot papers all need to be counted. We've mm. got 13 days after the election for all the postals to come in. And that's not just from Australians. Uh, well, that's from Australians, but it's from Australians overseas as well. We've got uh, people voting overseas and postal votes coming back through diplomatic mail. Thank you, DFAT, for that. Um <laughs> So there's a lot to be done um, and the AEC will be declaring um, results, look, for the next few weeks probably. 
Um, so the yeah, ATC never sleeps. That's it. <laughs> I'm hoping to have a bit of a break in uh, around uh, June, July, and uh, we'll see. 2024. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no break for you. Oh, I'm having to have a break at the end of the at the fall of democracy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's when I can have a break. Yeah. Well, no break for Alex, sadly, on Saturday. But let me tell you, you get a break from this interview now. We're going to let you go because I know that you have so many things that you need to do in the lead up to Saturday and presumably for some weeks to go after that. So good luck, my dude. It's been a pleasure and happy voting. Jan Fran has issues. So great to chat with Alex Morris, one of the brains behind the Twitter account of the AEC. Who knew we had this online relationship going all this time? Uh, look, I tell you what, they're one of the biggest issues in this election is housing prices. And this week's sponsor is a brand new government scheme to get young people into their new home. The Morrison government is serious about the future of Australians. That's why we're introducing Whole Seeker. Australians will now have the opportunity to access $50,000 of their superannuation to buy their first bunker. I'm all in on the side of those who want to buy a hole. With Hole Seeker, live out the rest of your life hiding 10 metres underground from whatever catastrophic shit show the world is hurtling towards. Who cares what 50k might grow into in 30 years' time? Will there even be banks in 30 years? Or a job to retire from? Or air? With Whole Seeker, your children and their children's children can feast on canned food, share oral histories about the outside, and develop innovative ways to drink their own pee while the earth witnesses an apocalyptic nightmare of biblical proportions. It boosts their ultimate retirement incomes because they're investing in their own whole, the best investment anyone ever makes. No matter if you're a first bunker buyer or buying your third investment bunker, sign up for Whole Seeker and vote for the coalition if your main concern is the cost of living on this planet. I believe buying a whole is the best economic decision that you can make. Authorised by, oh my God, you can't be serious. How far can you kick this can down the road before it all comes crashing down Canberra? Mm. Yep. Oh, hey, I think that might be the most comprehensive climate policy the coalition's put forward. <laughs> yeah, at least it's keeping Australians <laughs> safe in a hole. Here's the thing, Jan. We've, we've already got so many holes from all the coal mines we've already created, so we just, just least start leasing those out for people That's to live That's it. Under, We're halfway there. Hole keeper. That's the one. Big thank you to Jacob Round and Rupert Dagas and Killian David for that sketch. Thank you, guys. And thank you guys for listening to... What is the penultimate episode of Jan Fran Has Issues? We have only one more to go because the election is on Saturday. So next week, I mean, I would love to have a, a, a crystal ball or a what, Paul the crocodile or Paul the octopus or whichever animal predicts election results these days. I don't know who it is. Can we, can we for next week perhaps try to get the Prime Minister of Australia or a really good impressionist of the Prime Minister of Australia? Okay. I reckon... <laughs> Plan B might be where we end up landing, but hey, I'm totally fine with that. Um, we're going to have an election wash-up show, depending on how the cookie crumbles over the next um, day or so, over the next week or so, potentially. Um, and we'd love you to join us on the last episode, as always. Before we let you go, though, get out there and vote, my friends. Saturday, it's it's going to roll on by pretty quickly. Have your say. Number the boxes correctly. Have your so-so. And, um, you know, I hate sounding earnest, but we've, we've got a pretty good democracy going in this country comparative to some other places in the world. Trust me, I've been there. 
So As long as you know how to count to 75, we should be totally fine. <laughs> Please. A big thank you to our Patreon supporters, FNK Media, Alex Morris, Amy Romikas, Killing David Rupert, Dekas, Jacob Brown. Also, big thanks to you, Jen, and big thanks to me as well. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I do such a great job on this podcast, which is not much at all. Also, big thanks to the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, where Jan and I are recording this podcast. And remember to vote rationally. 